Matthew 23. This is not the text that a pastor chooses if he just wants to attract a lot of people and build a big church, I guess. But we believe here that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. And sometimes it's profitable for encouragement, blessing, upbuilding, and sometimes it's profitable for tearing down because we need to be brought low. Sometimes it's profitable for warning, for exhortation. And in the providence of God, that is the scripture we've come to again today, Matthew chapter 23. The Bible says that Christ came unto his own, but his own people did not receive him. Now, of course, a lot of crowds were following Jesus, and many of the crowds came not for Jesus, but for what Jesus would give them, right? Which honestly is why a lot of people, I think, follow Jesus today or claim to follow Jesus. We follow Jesus, people follow Jesus for what Jesus can do for them. He give them something, right, that they want. The people of Jesus, they followed him for food or merely for physical healing. But many of them uh, did not follow him for himself out of true faith. There were a few, thank the Lord. There were some who were truly converted, but by and large, especially in Jerusalem and in Judea, the people rejected our Lord's repeated overtures. The chronology of our Lord's ministry in Jerusalem and in Judea is, is um, compressed by the synoptic writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John makes it clear, he spells it out more explicitly, how Jesus went again and again and again and again back down to Judea and ministered there. Um, so Jesus had, had ministered there to uh, in a number of times, and the religious leaders, uh, the leaders of the city, the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Jerusalem establishment, they were eyewitnesses to signs and wonders and amazing testimony from the lips of the God of the universe himself. And yet they refused to believe him, just as they always had. They hardened their hearts, and they convinced the Jewish people, by and large, to reject Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah. And now for the very final time, our Lord has come to the city of Jerusalem, the capital city. And when he entered into the capital city, you remember that many of the pilgrims cried out in apparent faith, at least some of them, that here is our Messiah, the son of David. They hailed him with, with the words, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But the leaders, they doubled down on him. They tried to trap him. They tried to trip him up. And so, after all of the signs and the wonders and the teaching is finally rejected, uh, Jesus pronounces on the scribes and Pharisees seven woes. Seven pronouncements of condemnation, seven denouncements of these people who should have been um, 
his allies should have had eyes to see. And in spite of all that he did for them, uh, he now brings condemnation upon them. And he's charged them, we saw this last week, he charged the scribes and the Pharisees with their sins. They were guilty of inventive moral uh, rationalization, making excuses for their sin. They were guilty of self-justification by an appearance of righteousness and religion on the outside. They were guilty of hypocrisy, being one thing on the outside, but something else truly on the inside. And so Jesus has condemned them. And now in this text today, we come to Jesus' final climactic woe against the scribes and the Pharisees and the hypocrites. That will be our text for this morning. Jesus takes on in this last woe, not only the scribes and the Pharisees, but all of Jerusalem and Judea and the whole, basically the whole Jewish establishment. Beginning with verse number 29, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus, Jesus says, thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how can you... How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I say to you, therefore, excuse me, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Pharisees, um, Jesus charges in this seventh woe, these Pharisees are sons of their fathers, Jesus says. The Pharisees love to um, venerate the, the places of the dead uh, saints, Um, the martyrs of the past, the prophets, the holy men, and they made a big show of uh, giving honor to those men. But the truth is, Jesus says, these Pharisees and scribes, they were guilty of spiritual pride and self-deception. 
He said, they, they said to themselves, hey, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we wouldn't have done what they did in persecuting and killing the prophets that God sent to them. But the truth is, Jesus knows their hearts. And he says to them, in calling them your fathers, you're actually bearing witness against yourselves because you really are their sons. You are proving to be their sons, not just that you're physically descended from them, but you are just like them. Like the old saying, like father, like son. And so, Jesus says to them, go ahead, do, do what you have determined to do. Notice he says, verse 32, go ahead and fill up then, fill up the measure of your fathers. You might remember that back in Genesis chapter 15, God says to Abraham, Abraham, I will give you this land and I will give it to you and to your descendants, this land of Canaan, but not yet. God says, you're going to go away for 400 years before I give it to you. And here's why God said he wouldn't give it to them then, because the iniquity of the Canaanites is not yet complete. They're still filling up that, the measure of their iniquity. And when that measure of their sin is finally filled up, then the Canaanites were to be utterly and completely destroyed, right? And so Jesus says to the Pharisees, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Judgment will fall on them just as it did on the Canaanites when their iniquity is complete. You see, the Lord is not one to uh, play favorites in this way, that just because you are, uh, have this outward um, um, uh, connection to the people of God, God, or just because you conform to the outward um, rights of your religion, that, that that's going to save you. If you respond to God in unbelief like the pagans, then you will die like the pagans. And so what Jesus says is that he is actually doing something to that end. That is, he's doing something in order to bring about the full measure of the iniquity of the Jews. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus is contributing to their iniquity, but what he is doing is right and pure and good. Nevertheless, it will bring about this end. Note the word therefore in verse 34. He says, therefore, to that end, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. This is present tense. He's, he says, this has already begun. I've already begun sending you my messengers, right? Jesus has sent out his apostles out into the Jewish towns and villages. He had sent John the Baptist. All of this is, is ongoing and it'll continue. And their response will continue in the future. Notice he says, and some of you, some of whom, these messengers, you will kill and crucify 
And some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. And that's exactly the fate that some of his disciples suffered. Some of those beloved disciples of Jesus were crucified. Some were flogged. Some were beaten. All were persecuted. And once again, you see in verse 35, Christ's purpose in sending these prophets and messengers. Look again at verse 35. He's doing it, he says, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Abel, we know, the very first martyr in the Bible, killed for the sake of righteousness, his testimony. Um, Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, that one's a little less clear. Um, some people think that it refers to the prophet Zechariah, the one who, who wrote the, the, the minor prophet. Um, the problem is, and, because, and the reason we, some people think it's that is because he's specifically called the, the son of Berechiah in the text. But the problem is, of course, there's no record of his being martyred um, in the temple. Others think that it probably refers to the Zechariah in 2 Chronicles chapter 24. That Zechariah uh, had charged the people of Israel with breaking the law of God. And so the people conspired against him and had him stoned right in the temple, the Bible says, in the court of the house of the Lord. So it seems really to fit this um, situation that Jesus is referring to. The problem, of course, with that Zechariah is that the, the text in Chronicles calls him not the son of Berechiah, but the son of Jehoiada. Um, there's a couple of possibilities why that might be the case. One is that this Zechariah might be the grand, actually the grandson, when it says he's the son of Jehoiada, that he's the grandson, which is the way that son is sometimes used in the Bible, or father. Um, so in that case, he would have a, an immediate father whose name was Berechiah, who's just not recorded in the Bible. Another possibility, and I think the ESV footnote uh, takes note of this, that, that maybe it's a, a textual um, um, addition uh, that, that, was, uh, that there, there was a corruption in the text. But from what I've gathered, the evidence for that is not very strong. Probably, at least I think what maybe perhaps the most plausible, is that Berechiah has two names. Uh, he's also known as Jehoiada. And in fact, if you go to the Greek translation of this text in Second Chronicles, you'll find that apparently um, Zechariah also had two names because he's called Azariah in the Greek text. So maybe both father and son had two names. In any case, there's no real, um, there's no real contradiction or error here. Any of these is plausible. The point is clear. Jesus is talking here about all of the martyrs for the testimony of Christ, for the testimony of God, all of the martyrs throughout the whole Old Testament, from A to Z, so to speak. Works well in English. Um, from, from the beginning of the Bible, Abel, to the end of Old Testament history, chronologically, with Zechariah, uh, the, the prophet, or if it's the Zechariah, 
of Second Chronicles. It's, it's from the beginning of their canonical Old Testament to the end, because Second Chronicles is the end. So in other words, Jesus is taking the whole gamut of all of the Old Testament prophets, all of these people, and he is saying that these messengers that he is now sending and that he will send are in continuity with all of those Old Testament prophets whom Israel's fathers rejected and persecuted and and even killed. And this generation now that Jesus is speaking to, they are proving to be true sons of their fathers in the moral and spiritual sense because they're treating Christ and they're treating his apostles, they're treating his messengers the same way that their fathers did. And so all of that righteous blood will come upon this generation, Jesus says, this wicked city. And indeed, they would cry out in just a few days, let his blood be upon us and upon our children. Such rejection of truth cries out for God's vengeance. You think of the first martyr, Abel, and the Bible says that God told Cain, his blood is crying out to me from the ground. Or the last martyr, Zechariah, when he was dying, he said, may the Lord see and avenge. 2 Chronicles 24-22. The people of Israel, friends, the people of Israel had been recipients of so much revelation, so much light. They had had prophet after prophet. They had had the word of God given to them uniquely. They had the priesthood, they had the sacrifices, they had teaching, they had sermons, they had exhortations, they had warning after warning after warning for thousands of years. This is what Jesus is getting at. For thousands of years they have had this, and now they are rejecting God's greatest messenger, his own son. All of these rejections are just crying out for God's judgment. And Jesus says in verse 32, Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. It is as if all of those rejections were kind of storing up judgment in the cup of God's wrath. Can you picture this in your mind? All of those rejections after rejection after rejection of all of the warnings that God gave them were storing up the judgment of God in the cup of his wrath. And every once in a while, he would tip that cup and pour out his judgment upon his people. And, and, and in some, some ways, they might kind of repent outwardly and kind of try to, you know, change their ways a little bit. But, but in their hearts, they continued on by and large. They continued on in their rebellion and their unbelief. While yet a remnant was faithful, many of them, many of this people continued on not believing what God had revealed to them. 
And so they kept storing up more and more and more and more judgment. And now it is as if Jesus is saying this, that, that, that finally that cup is almost full. And who, the people I am sending you, you will reject them, and that will be the final drops in that cup. And then, friends, can you imagine this? God pouring out the entire cup of his wrath undiluted upon a people. All of the judgment of the living God falling upon their heads. All of these things, he says, will come upon this generation. That same terminology will be picked up in the next chapter. Matthew will pick it up. Jesus will continue to use language like that. All of these things, this generation in chapter 24, in order to describe the judgment that is about to fall upon that people. Some of you have heard a lot of sermons too. Some of you have heard a lot of messages through the years. You've read some scripture. You've had people talk to you about the Lord, about your life, warn you. And there are some who continue on in their hypocrisy thinking that no one sees, no one knows. And they have an outward appearance of religion, but the truth is that in their hearts, they don't have any real concern for God. They have a concern for fitting into a social group or meeting somebody's expectations or, or uh, just getting by until they can get out from under this uh, these parents, and make their own way in the world. And the truth is that they are storing up for themselves wrath. Every sermon that you hear is another drop in that bucket, another testimony of the long-suffering of God. But that long-suffering one day will come to an end, and then His righteous judgment will fall upon all those who reject him. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up for yourself wrath on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Romans 2. Every hypocrite should contemplate the question, how full is the cup of God's wrath? How long, sinner, will you get away with your sin? Don't fool yourself. The truth is that a person who persists in rejecting the testimony that he has received, hearing sermon after sermon after sermon, and yet doesn't lay hold of it in repentant faith, the Scripture says that though you did not hammer the nails into Jesus' hands, yet you will be guilty of the blood of Christ. 
that you have spurned. Hebrews chapter 10 says it this way, if we go on sinning willfully, deliberately, if we go on sinning and deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, these are just some of the most sobering words in the Bible to me. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And it is a fearful thing indeed. To imagine that God himself, the creator of all things, the one in whose word is omnipotent power to bring anything to pass that he desires in this universe, would focus all of his righteous anger upon your head. Now, if God is actually tugging on your heart today, And if you sense that feeling of conviction, then perhaps it's not too late for you. Because if you will humble yourself before the Lord, you will find that the blood of Christ speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, which cried out for the vengeance of God. The old hymn says, Five bleeding wounds Christ bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransom sinner die. This is the prayer that our Lord's blood makes for those who are humble. But for those who just hear, and let it roll off your back like water off a duck's back, who just let it go in one ear and out the other, who just think, well, I just endured one more sermon in life. I want to warn you that you are storing up more wrath that will fall on your head. Run from the wrath of God before it does fall. Right now is your chance. Right now is the time. Say, Lord, forgive me, cleanse me, wash me, take over my life. For the sake of Jesus Christ, oh Lord, be merciful to me. My hope is in him. If you're a sinner, come to him, stop hiding. And you will find him sweet. And in fact, in this text here in front of us, in spite of the harshness of Jesus' condemnation, yet in this last part of the text, you hear still his heart for sinners. Verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered you 
I would gather your children together like a hen gathers her little chicks under her wings when this big storm is coming and about to fall. He says, but you were not willing. Of course, it is true that in, a, in, in, in the broader sense, God works all things after the counsel of his will. He does whatever he pleases, right? But looking, looking narrowly at these single acts of rejection, God wants us to know that he takes no pleasure in them, that he desires all men everywhere to repent. Listen today. God would have you to repent. God would call you to Himself. It is as if He would gather you under His wings to protect you from the righteous wrath of God that should fall on your head so that you would be safe in His bosom. And perhaps today, Whether it's somebody sitting here, somebody watching online, I just want to say maybe today God is, listen to me, maybe God is calling you. Maybe in the words of this fallible preacher, you will hear the almighty voice of the living God calling you to come back to him, to come to him. He's waiting for you like the father waiting for the prodigal to come home. Will you be willing to humble yourself, willing to trust? The great tragedy is, of course, that in spite of our Lord's many, many overtures to the people of Jerusalem, they were unwilling to come. And so he says in verse 38, in verse 38, see your house is left to you, what? Desolate. And then if you look at verse chapter 24, verse 1, just jump ahead and notice it's exactly what happened. And Jesus left the temple and was going away. This would be his last week in that temple. And they would see him no more. He left their house empty. He left it desolate. God deserted the house of God. That's exactly what happened. The true temple abandoned those who rejected him in the temple. Their only hope would have been repentance and faith. Look at verse 39. He says, For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I think that it's going beyond the text to say that that's a a prediction, that that's something that will happen or a promise. I think rather it's a condition. Like a parent might say to their rebellious, wayward child, listen, until you apologize and agree to abide by our rules, you will not live in our house. And so the Lord Jesus says to these people, you won't experience the presence of God in this house until you repent, until you say, along with those who greeted me when I first came to the temple, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Which in fact is a quotation 
from Psalm 118, where the Bible says that the builders of the temple will take a stone and cast it aside, but God intends for that stone to be the cornerstone of the real temple. They re- the Jews rejected Jesus. Their, their leaders abandoned him. They, they hardened their hearts against him. They determined that they would not submit to his rule. And his, he says that their house will be left to them desolate, and they will not see him again unless they repent. And these, these friends, are actually Jesus' last recorded public words to Israel. That's it. This is God's final call to his people, to those who were ostensibly his people, to repent. I mean, he had sent them prophets. He had sent them preachers, apostles. Finally, God had sent his very own son, and they have rejected and rejected and rejected. And now, Jesus says, their rejection will end in their desolation. God will leave them abandoned, alone, destroyed, no more presence of God in their midst. And that's absolutely the most fearful thing that a human could imagine, is to, ha- to no more have the the. Um, the approving presence of God, the blessed presence of God in their midst. To have God, in a sense, abandon you, give you over to desolation, to give you over to do whatever you want. Some, some, some rebellious people say, oh, I just wish people would let me do what I want to do. I just wish people would leave me alone and stop telling me that I'm doing the wrong thing and stop chastising me all the time. I wish people would stop giving me rules and making me do things that I don't want to do. I wish people would just leave me alone. Let me tell you, the worst thing in the world for you would be for God to leave you alone. I tell you this, if God left you alone, there would be no hope for you. You say, well, I might just go my own way and do my own thing and have a little fun for a while and then someday come back to God. No, my friend, the truth is, if God leaves you alone, you will never come back to God. Because a man left to himself has nothing but hardness of heart toward God. If God God removes his presence, if he removed his conviction, if you filled up that cup finally big enough to where God just says, all right, I'm going to dump it out, and the wrath of God doesn't look like what you might think it looks like, There are people who think the wrath of God must look like a thunderbolt to come out of heaven or an earthquake or getting cancer all of a sudden when I'm 32 years old. The wrath of God sometimes looks like going on in your ease without any more conviction, without any more feeling bad about sin. That's the wrath of God. And that's the most fearful place you could possibly be. Brothers and sisters, all of us, may it not be, that any of us proves to be a hypocrite, but that we open our hearts to the Lord, someday you'll hear God's final call to you to take his offer of salvation true. This could be it, my friend, if you but knew 
God's final call. How can you live another day in sin thinking someday with Christ you will begin? Oh, will you hear above the world's loud din God's final call? If you reject God's final call of grace, you'll have no chance your footsteps to retrace. All hope will then be gone and doom you'll face. Oh, hear his call, God's final call. I prepared in meditation on this text this week. I just couldn't help but wonder if this sermon might be God's final call to one who hears. One person under the sound of my voice today that maybe this is your, so to speak, in human terms, this is your last chance. That this is it. I appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Do not boast about tomorrow because you do not know what Tomorrow may bring. You might say, well, I've got more of my life ahead. I'm a young person. Listen, I tell you, you might live another 40 years, but God may not call you again, and you will be hardened in your sin. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and I would heal them. This could be your last chance to see Christ, to hear his voice through the words of this sermon, calling out to you, come to me, leave your sin, trust me, follow me, forsake your own way. This is it. This is it right now. I don't know. It could even be that for some, this sermon is God's intent. to add one more drop of his just wrath, to prove just how righteous his wrath will be when it falls. That you will not be able to say to God, oh, I never heard, nobody ever warned me, nobody ever told me. I didn't know, my. I, 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 all I saw was, you know, just what was around me. Nobody ever stopped me. No, this is it. And God will hold you accountable on the day of his wrath. I close with these sobering words from the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 3. As it is written today, if you hear his voice, if you hear it, I hope that's you guys, you actually hear him. You hear it, you feel it, you say, this is right, this is true, I believe this. If you hear his voice, listen to me, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. For those, for who were those who heard? See, they heard, wasn't that they didn't hear, but they didn't hear. They rebelled. He says, was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? 
And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that he would not enter his, they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, here's the conclusion to my sermon. Here's the conclusion to this passage. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, right now you have this moment. You actually hear his voice. The promise is there. It's ready to be laid hold of. While it's still there, before it's too late, he says, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. May it not be for you, for me. May this sermon be the means by which God brings you to himself before it's too late. Let's bow our heads for a time of reflection and meditation.